All right, so I want you to take out your notebooks this morning and turn them over. As was mentioned last week, this is how we're going to begin our time together each week. So let's go over our purpose and our disciplines. And we begin here because we never want to lose sight of why we gather together on Thursday morning. So our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. That's our goal. Last week, Scott Maxwell got us started by explaining the vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church. We heard how important it is for us to position ourselves daily before the Word of God to drink in the glory of God. We drink in His glory, we're transformed, and He's glorified. And as we do that, not only are we personally strengthened, but as we then come into contact with one another, the entire body is affected. The church is strengthened. So to help us even better understand that, we have three disciplines. So the first discipline is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. Now, what do we mean when we say shepherd our heart? For those of you who have been around a a while, you know that we use that term often, but I want to make sure that we understand what we mean when we use that phrase. So one definition is to supply what is required for our soul's need. To supply what is required for the soul's need. And that's a great way for us to be thinking about shepherding our hearts. We are supplying the very thing that our souls need most by meeting prayerfully with God in his word. So that our heart, and again, that's who we are inwardly before God, is fed and strengthened to worship God. We come away being prepared to walk, to trust him, to walk in obedience to his commands, in our thoughts, and in our deeds. And our goal is to do that throughout the day, right? We don't read his word, close it up, go, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and then forget it. No, we read in a way that it impacts our hearts, that we live out the truths throughout the day. And again, the point is not just to check off the box on our reading plan, right? The focus is to bring our hearts before God in such a way that we will cultivate a nearness to God and grow in our affections for him. And that takes some good planning, doesn't it? So you'll have some time this morning in uh, your discussion groups. If you are still a little bit unsure about what reading plan you want to choose, you might just ask some of the gals in your group why they chose the plan they did and the benefits of having a plan. And then Discipline 2 talks about the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. As women, we have a spiritual influence in our homes, right? We all recognize that. But the question we need to ask ourselves is what kind of influence are we making there? Do we see ourselves as sent ones in our homes? 
Are we looking for ways to bring the gospel into the conversations there? Discipline number two is about being a woman who understands the value that God places on the relationships in our home and makes those relationships a priority. Therefore, this kind of woman is committed to discipline number one, caring for her own heart because she understands that discipline two is an outflow of discipline one. Our conversations and our attitudes and our service to those in our home will, will all reflect how we've met with God in his word. And then discipline number three is ministry with a heart for God and the gospel, fulfilling her ministry within her home. She steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. See, these disciplines help us establish priorities. If we have supplied our soul's need because we've been drawing near to God and his word, and we are caring for those in our households as an extension of our heart for God, then we will be ready to care for others and to serve them well. These disciplines have to overlap, and they have to take place at the same time. We can't say, I'm not ready for ministry yet because I'm still working on disciplines number one and two. Well, we're going to be doing that for the rest of our lives. And so we need to remember that we do need to care for those in, in the body. But there must be a priority in our thinking. We need to be careful that we are shepherding our own hearts with the word and that we are being intentional about living that out in our home as we are reaching out and caring for others. So that's our, our purpose and our disciplines. And again, we're going to go over these every week that we're together. So this morning, we're going to begin our teaching on the heart by looking at the gospel's implications for our hearts. Because understanding what the gospel has accomplished in the life of a believer is central to shepherding our hearts. So when you came in this morning, you picked up a brochure that looks like this. And you also picked up um, some uh, outlines, some worksheets that look like this. So let's first look at the brochure. It's called God's Transformation of Man. And if you've taken Wellspring before, you're going to go, oh, it's different. Yes, it is. You'll see lots of changes in it this year. So this brochure obviously is meant to fold up, and it is meant to be used. Okay, if it's not worn out by the end of the year, I'm going to be really disappointed. Um, we have we've had it professionally printed like this so that you do take it out often and look it over and continue to study it. It's a great tool to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in the gospel, what's true about us in the gospel. And then these worksheets that you received are, are identical to the brochures. They're just the four different panels. And these, um, we just printed them out in this way because we thought it'd be really uh, more effective for you to be able to take notes on these. So if you need to use the back, um, feel free to do that. If you want to take notes, those are that's why we provided those for you. So this is going to be our outline for the next two weeks. <clears throat> and as we look over the, the brochure, 
You'll notice that Scott touched on just a few of, the, of these um, terms that we're going to see in the chart last week, but we're going to look at them in a very systematic way, and we're going to look at them in great detail. So if you felt lost last week, maybe after hearing some of the terms that Scott used, maybe those were unfamiliar to you, let me just encourage you. We're going to go over this um, in a, again, very systematically, in a very detailed way. You'll find that a lot of those definitions of the terms that Scott used um, last week are either on the chart, they're actually printed on here, or I'm going to give them to you. Um, so, um, as you hear those, some unfamiliar terms, as I explain them, if they're not on here, you might want to jot those down on the worksheets that were given to you. So, today we get to look at the gospel. Okay, essentially that's what is on this chart. We're going to look at God's salvation work in the gospel. The gospel, as we know, isn't something that we need to understand merely for salvation. Understanding the gospel, how the gospel, excuse me, understanding the gospel affects how we live every day as believers, right? And so um, that's why we're going to be spending this morning and next week looking at different angles, different aspects of God's great salvation work. So as you open up the chart, this brochure, you can see that there is a lot on here. <clears throat> and your first thought might be, oh no, here comes another fire hose, right? Um, I don't want you to be overwhelmed by looking at this. I just want to re really encourage you. First of all, we're not going to get to everything that's on the chart. There's just way too much information on there. Um, and I also want you to know that our goal in looking at this is to see the big picture, okay? We want to see the big picture of what God does when he saves a sinner. So as we walk through section by section, that will become clear to you. And uh, if you still have questions, just remember, this is your brochure, so you get to Keep this, take it out. Maybe if there's one particular section that you still have some questions, and we obviously won't get to every every scripture verse that's listed there, take this out again and look up those other passages and see if that brings clarity to you. Remember, you have your discussion group leader. You can ask her questions if you still have questions by the time we're done um, next week. And I know that there are so many women here who would be more than happy to sit down and uh, walk through any sections that are still unclear, but I, I really think it will become clear to you. The other thing that will be helpful for you to know up front is that you may not see it by just looking at the, at, I mean, what looks kind of looks just like information now, but this lesson is immensely practical. It shows us what Christ has done, what he's accomplished for us at the cross. It shows us who we are in Christ. It shows us why we struggle with sin, why obedience matters. It will grow us in our understanding of the gospel, and it will spur us on in our walks with Christ. And I think it also will be very, very helpful, especially after next week, to understand why it is so important that we shepherd our hearts. So let's begin by looking at, let's do a quick overview. And for this, it might be helpful to actually 
um, look at the chart so that you have all of those pictures on the top together. Okay, so let's look at the figures across the top. When you see people, you see how there's um, different people across the top, different sections of people. When you see people, that represents a condition of man. And again, by the time we're done with this, that's going to be really familiar and clear to you. So the descriptions of these various conditions then are in blue beneath those figures. Okay, so here's the unregenerate man, there's the explanation okay and that's the same with all of those blue panels and then you see three gray triangles or I've been told that I am colorblind and people told me it's brown well I don't know what you think but it looks gray to me so I'm gonna refer to them as gray so you see three gray triangles across the top and those gray triangles represent events those are things that happen at a point in time so you'll notice that those triangles point to gray peaks, see right there? And then that peak kind of leads us down a path to the bottom of the chart where there's a description of each event. Okay, so is that part clear? Does everyone see that? I don't want to lose anyone at this point in it. Okay, so there are conditions and there are events. So let's go back up to the top. Now notice that the people have both an inner man and an outer shell. You'll see that marked on the first one there. The inner man is who we are at the heart level. It's who we are inwardly before God, how God sees us. We could say it's the real you. This is what the Bible often refers to as the heart or the inner man. And then the outer shell represents our physical bodies, or what the Bible refers to as our members. It's our hands, our eyes, our mouth, our feet. And it's important for you to understand that our members display what we are on the inside. Okay, our members display what's, what, is, what we are on the inside. What comes out of us through our members reveals what's already in our hearts. It displays what's inside of us. So on the left, um, we have the unregenerate man. Okay, this is who we were apart from Christ. So then moving across the top to the right, we have the first gray triangle, and you see that that's the regeneration event. Okay, that's conversion. This is when um, we become a follower of Christ through the gospel. Because people like that one over on the left, the unregenerate man, need only one thing, right? They need to be converted through the gospel. They need regeneration. And then um, that triangle points to the gray peak again, which leads down to the bottom. And you see the description of regeneration at the bottom. And by the way, it's laid out this way simply for the purpose of space, okay? And we wanted to be able to fold it up this year and actually have it, the three, three sections, um, to where you could just see it all at once. And so we put the events down at the bottom. And then if you look at the next set of figures at the top, we see those three gray to yellow figures, and that represents the regenerate man. This is what the Bible calls the new creation, or the new man. 
And this represents, for those of us who are believers, this represents where we are right now in the Christian life. So here you'll notice that the inner man is fundamentally different than what we noticed in the unregenerate man. Notice how that unregenerate man is completely gray. But the regenerate man is in the process of changing. And that's why you see those, the colors changing from, uh, gradually from gray to yellow as you move to the right. That represents growth in our Christian life as we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. So again, these figures show us what happens to the believer. Then continuing to the right, we come to the, another event, that's death. And then after that, there is another um, there is a, another figure, and that one's completely yellow. It's yellow because it's referring to a believer. And, and you'll notice that it's with, without an outer shell. In other words, there's no body. And it shows that death for the believer um, means that the outer man is dead, but the inner man continues to live. And again, we know it's a believer because it's completely yellow. And that yellow shows us that we will no longer be fighting against sin. Do you think about what that's going to be like? No longer fighting against sin. Because we're going to be with Jesus. And then you see another gray triangle that represents um, the event of either uh, re uh, the resurrection or the rapture. And then you see where we get new bodies. We get a glorified body. Now, if that word rapture is unfamiliar to you, um, it, it uh, refers to the description that we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's when Jesus comes back again and he catches up believers with him in the air. First, those who are dead and then those who are alive. And then we get glorified bodies. So that's just a quick overview. I hope that's helpful to you as we now go into detail of the chart. So if you can, I know we don't have tables, but if you can, kind of leave this open and then I want you to open up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians 2. If we want to better understand the gospel for evangelism, for growing in Christ, um, for those of us who are saved, that's how we grow in Christ. If we um, want to be able to encourage others, help build them up in their faith, then we need to begin with who we were before Christ or who anyone is apart from Christ. So look, look back down for just a section at that first blue section where it says the unregenerate man. The verses in this section describe a person who is without Jesus. So you'll see on the chart that it says it is an unmixed, sinful condition. Unregenerate man is completely unrighteous. You see that if you move to the right of that kind of blue header there, um, that kind of the, where the triangle is. And that describes all of us before the gospel had impacted our lives and made us new. Okay, this, we need to remember, this was our identity. And it still is the identity of everyone who is not in Christ, everyone who is apart from Christ. So let's look at Ephesians 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. 
Um, Listen to what it says about us before we knew Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you'll see that on your chart where it says dead in sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And so next we have walks in sins. You see that on the chart? According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. You see that on the chart. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So notice that our flesh and our mind had common, unified desires. Okay, there wasn't tension between the two of them. This is an unmixed condition. Now I want you to drop down to verse 12. It says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And you see those on the chart as well. Again, that was our condition. We were without hope. We were without God. So continuing on then in the chart, you'll see Colossians 1.13 says that we were in the domain of darkness. We were under the, uh, the authority and power of darkness. And it blinded us to our condition. We didn't understand the spiritual danger we were in, did we? Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. That's why we didn't understand just how lost we were. We were deceived. Titus continues, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Colossians 1.21 says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Romans 6 tells us we were slaves to sin. Sin ruled our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, our actions. Sin was our master. And you can see that there are many more descriptions of the unregenerate man on the chart. And again, I think this would be a great thing for us to take out and continue to study. Take out those verses and look them up on on our own. So now I want you to look at the very third column in that section where it says uh, key descriptions of this old condition. Does everyone see where that is? The first thing that you'll see there um, as a a summary, we're going to summarize now uh, the key descriptions of the unregenerate man. And again, this is one who is, is not a follower of Christ and it's who every one of us used to be. So the first thing you'll see, um, which we already mentioned, is that it is an unmixed condition. We were unmixed in regards to death. Okay, we were spiritually dead. There was no trace of life in us. We were unmixed in regards to hostility toward God. 
There was no trace of honor of him. We were unmixed in rebellion. We were unmixed in our love of self-rule and our hatred of God's rule. There was nothing in us to disagree with what we were doing as slaves of sin. Remember Ephesians 2.3 said that we indulged in the desires of our flesh and mind? Again, there was no friction or disagreement between the two. Every single part of us was in agreement about running away from God and to our own ways. The New Testament calls that the old man. It's who we were apart from Christ. And then the next key description that you see there is that we were unable not to sin, unable to please God. No one in that condition is even able to subject herself to God. And she doesn't want to. It is impossible not to sin in that unmixed condition. Even when outward behavior looks good, the unregenerate man is incapable of God-honoring motives. They are unable to please God. And because this is an unmixed condition, you see the next thing, there is no fight within. We weren't fighting against sin, and we certainly weren't fighting to get Jesus. We were dominated by and enslaved to sin. Sin ruled all of our faculties, ruled our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our actions. And you'll see next that we were unable to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. And when we did try to battle sin, when we did try to change, the best we could do was exchange one sin for another if we had any success at all. But there was no turning to God in it, no desire to glorify him and submit to him. And the whole time we couldn't see that anything we may have been trying to do was just, was even though even our best efforts at that point were just filthy rags before God. We weren't earning anything from God but wrath. And that's the final key description of this old condition. We were under God's wrath and judgment. There is a penalty for sin. I mean, just look at that section. How could God be just and not punish that? What you made of yourself, what you earned, and what you loved, how could God not judge you? How could he not judge me? God has holy, righteous wrath against sin. There is a penalty, a judgment that will come, and it must be paid. Now, when you hear this, what does your heart do? When you remember that this is who you were, this is what we have been saved out of, ladies. Does that produce in you a gratitude for God, for all that he has done for us in the gospel? 
Knowing this should make a difference in our devotion to Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? See, if we allow ourselves to slip into thinking something like, well, we really weren't, I was really that bad before I came to, before God saved me. Okay, Christ maybe came and saved me from mistakes that I made. If we think like that, our heart is going to grow cold toward God. But if we see our old condition as God sees it, as we saw this morning, because this came from his word, it's going to cause us to grow. And we will develop a deeper and deeper awe for God in what he has done for us in the gospel. And it will give us a heart for those that remain in this condition. Do you think it's good for us to do what we're doing here? To look in the rearview mirror. We don't live there anymore, right? Praise God for that. But parking here and remembering this makes the rest of what we're going to see on this chart so much more meaningful. And it will fuel our love for God. So let's not forget what we've been rescued from. I really would challenge you, take some time this week and just kind of soak yourselves in this part of the chart, in this truth, that this is who we were, this is how God saw us. Let's not forget the condition that we once were in. But now, we get to look at God's answer, his solution to that condition. We get to talk about regeneration. And again, you see that represented up at the top of uh, the chart, that gray triangle, that first gray triangle up at the top. And then again, it points um, to that peak. And then if you follow that down, you see at the very bottom, the description of the regeneration event. Um, and as I said, again, it's just, it's, it's planned out that way simply for purposes of space. So how does a person ever escape what we saw over in this left-hand column of regeneration, that first blue section, and come to have hope that one day we will see the reality of this one over here, of the heavenly man, that one day is going to be our reality. But how does that happen? How do we get from here over to here? God regenerates us. Regeneration means new birth. We're talking about the beginning of new life in Christ when we are declared righteous. And again, you'll see that at the bottom of the chart to the uh, right of where it says regeneration event, we are declared righteous. God's solution for what we had made of ourselves in that old, unmixed, sinful condition was not to clean us up or somehow try and fix us up a little bit. No, he starts over. He causes us to be born again. And that, and as we look at that event of regeneration, 
The key, what we need to remember, is that all of this has been accomplished by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Scott said last week, there's only one set of fingerprints on the event of regeneration, and they are God's. So now as we go through this section, again, there might be some unfamiliar terms um, or words that you might hear, but they're just words, okay? They're, they're uh, words um, that describe what God did for us at salvation, but they are helpful to know. So that as you come across, as you're reading the Bible and you see those terms, you'll know what they mean. So and if you come across them in your Bible and you forget, just take this back out. And they'll be described here, or um, if there's something that isn't on here and you're unfamiliar, again, just jot that down on uh, these handouts so that when you come across those in the Bible, you can just refer back and you'll know exactly what uh, the Bible is talking about. So let's start with where it says underneath there, the gospel. Okay, the first thing you'll see is two theological summaries of the good news. The first one is adoption through propitiation. And then the second one is penal substitutionary atonement. Now again, since we want to keep growing in our understanding of the good news of the gospel, we're going to talk about what each one of these words and phrases mean. We're not going to... We're not going to um, get overwhelmed by them or back off. Or let's just talk through them so that we become familiar with them. So the first one that you see is adoption through propitiation. So let's begin by looking at the word adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, we all know that not every earthly father has kind intentions toward his children. But our Heavenly Father does. That's why he adopted us. Through adoption, God makes us his children. We are loved, cared for, taught, and sometimes even disciplined by God. He becomes our perfect Heavenly Father. And how do we come to um, be recipients of such a great privileged status before him? Adoption is ours through propitiation. Now, propitiation simply means wrath satisfied. Wrath satisfied. If there is to be any hope for us to have a relationship with God, God had to take his cup and at that point, filled with wrath toward us. And he poured it out completely, not a drop left, so that when he looked at it, he was satisfied. His wrath toward us is gone because that cup of wrath has been poured out on his son. So we have adoption where God makes us his children through propitiation. Wrath, God's wrath, being satisfied through Jesus' death on the cross. So when you see that word propitiation as you're reading in the Bible, think of wrath satisfied. Think of that cup 
no longer full of wrath, not a drop left, because that wrath has been placed on Jesus in our place. In these two gospel realities, adoption and propitiation have something awesome in common. They reveal to us the measure of God's love. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. How do we know that God loves us? He adopted us. He made us his own children. And 1 John 4, 10 tells us, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So how does this verse say that we know God loves us? Because he sent his son to the cross. Because Jesus satisfied God's wrath toward us. Adoption through propitiation summarizes the good news of the gospel. By capturing the relationship between God's two great expressions of love for his people, while at the same time acknowledging the seriousness of God's wrath toward sin. And then the next theological summary of the good news is penal substitutionary atonement. Does that sound a little bit familiar? For those of you who were here last week, I hope so. Scott went over this. But let's go ahead and review. So let's look at the first word, penal. What's the word we're to think of when we hear penal? Penalty. Penalty, right. It's like the word penalty. God is a righteous God who in his righteousness will not, he cannot leave sin unpunished. And that's what's meant by penal. There is a penalty for sin. Substitutionary means one taking the place of another. There has to be a substitute. And what kind of a substitute? Innocent. Yes, it has to be an innocent substitute. We're given a picture of that throughout the Old Testament with a lamb being sacrificed for the sin of Um, for the sins of those who were under the old covenant, the lamb, in that case, took the place of the sinner. And uh, then in 1 John 1.29, John the Baptist borrows from that Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial lamb when he declared of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the innocent substitute Lamb who shed his blood so that our penalty would be paid for. And then we have atonement. Again, Scott uh, mentioned this last week, if you take the word that word apart, atone, you get at one. Atonement, then, is the taking away of sin and shame so that we may be made right with God. We may be at one with him. So that's penal substitutionary atonement. Our penalty had to be paid by an innocent substitute 
so that our sin could be taken away and we could be made right with God. We could be at one with him. That's the core of the gospel. And I I find this so helpful when I find myself um, in a place where I have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And sometimes, you know, those come just like that. It's helpful for me to remember so that I get it, so that I share a complete gospel. Penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, um, so those are the two theological summaries of the good news that highlight the, the different aspects of the gospel. If we put both of those summaries together in one, into one sentence, we might say we get God through Jesus in our place. And you have that on, on the chart. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. And that is great news, isn't it? Again, these terms help us understand more and more what God has done for us in salvation. Now, we're going to talk more about the components and benefits, you see that on your chart, of that good news. But first, we need to understand how this comes to be true of a person. So you'll see that on the chart when you see the phrase appropriated through repentance and faith. Appropriate means to take possession of. It simply means to take possession of. Salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ is taken possession of through repentance and faith. It's the call of G- that Jesus made early in his ministry. In Mark 1, 14 through 15, it tells us that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we have to repent and believe. Now to repent means that we turn away from a life of sin and self-rule and we turn to God. And we turn to God, believing that our penalty was paid for by Jesus to atone for our sin. Turning away from sin and turning to follow Jesus is something that God brings about. He causes us to be regenerated so that we do turn and repent, so that we do believe That what Christ accomplished on the cross is everything that we need to be made right with God. That's how we get God through Jesus' death in our place. That's the event of regeneration, and it has only one set of fingerprints on it. God's. Now we're ready to look at the regeneration event components. That's the next thing you'll see on the bottom where we'll see God's solution to man's unmixed rebellion toward him. Again, these are a once and for all time event accomplished by God at the time of conversion. So the first one we see is that God gives us new birth, new life. We are a new creation. We're not what we were before. Ephesians 2.5 tells us that God made us alive together with 
Christ. Not just alive, not just somewhere off over here, just spared from hell. No, he makes us alive with Christ. We're together with him. And the next you see on the chart that he gives us positional sanctification. Believers are once and for all set apart. We're set apart from sin and we're set apart for God. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes to those who are to those who have been sanctified. And then in chapter 6 he says you were sanctified. God has set believers apart. Now the word sanctified in the New Testament is used in two different ways. The first one is used to describe this positional reality of holiness, this declaration of holiness that God makes. And then there's a second way that it's used in the New Testament, and that describes the process of becoming holy. And we're going to look at that next week, okay, under when we get to the process there. But here, we're talking about the gospel event of regeneration, that positional sanctification, where God, once and for all, in an event, makes us holy in his sight. This is God's solution to all that we were, all that we saw in that unregenerate man section. The unregenerate man, that man, that woman is anything but holy. So we needed to be taken out of that and God needed to give us new life. And God needed to make us holy before him. What else? What's God's answer to what we were? What's the next one listed? You see it? Thank you, justification. Okay, God's answer to that condition was to declare us to be righteous on the basis of faith alone. To justify us on the basis of Christ's sinless record. What else? What is God's answer to what we were? Imputation. Impute means to credit. Believers are credited with God's righteousness, while Jesus was credited with believers' sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's answer to the mess that we made of ourselves was to impute our sin to Jesus and to impute God's righteousness to us. There will never be a more amazing exchange than that. And yet, nothing less would suffice to take us out of what we were and make us something that is acceptable before God. So what else do we learn about God's answer to all that we were? What does it say next? Adoption. He adopted us. Okay, we already talked about that under gospel summaries. He actually made us his children forever. And that brings us to union with Christ. 
What is God's answer to that unregenerate state that we were in before, without Christ? He unites us with his Son. See, our huge problem in that unregenerate state is that we were without Christ. We saw that, right? Um, so God's solution then is to unite us with Christ, therefore allowing us to share in all of the benefits and riches that result from Christ's obedient life when he lived here on earth and his death on the cross. Their condition was so bad that God invested the most precious thing that he had. He gave us his son, and he unites us with his son. And that was such a powerful work of God that God says we can never go back to what we once were before Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We cannot lose the benefits of the gospel. We cannot go back to what we once were without Christ, before Christ. So do we ever sin? Yeah, of course we do. But a sinner can never go back to being enslaved to sin. Okay, sin will never again be our master. That's God's solution to what we were. So next we have expiation. You see that? And what does that mean? Okay. Yes. Sin removed, right? Because that's what happened. It's the taking away of sin and guilt. In Hebrews 9.26 um, tells us that Jesus has been made, excuse me, excuse me, let me start again. Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is expiation. Sin removed, sin put away. And we needed that so desperately if we were going to be made right with God. Our sin and our guilt had to be taken away. So what is God's solution to that unmixed sinful condition? What's the next one? Propitiation. And what does that mean? Wrath satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied how? Through whom? Through Jesus. Through Jesus' blood. And next, the next one listed is redemption. It means bought with Jesus' blood. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us in him we have redemption through his blood. There is only one thing that God would accept to redeem someone out of slavery to sin, and it's the blood of Jesus. That is what God provided to redeem us to himself. What else has God done? What's next? Reconciliation. It means to be at peace with God. If we were to have any hope of being with God, we had to be reconciled to him. God had to overcome the separation that existed between us 
and him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says God reconciled us to him through Christ. God did everything that was required while we were still his enemies to actually bring us to himself. What else has God done? Forgiveness. He releases us from the judgment that we deserved. And then the last one, the old man is crucified. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That is God's answer to what we made of ourselves as the old in the old man. What does he do? Does he fix it up a little bit? No, he kills it first of all. We can never go back. And then he makes us something completely new. We were dead, but he gave us life. We were engaged in evil deeds, he set us apart for holiness. He set us apart for himself. We deserved judgment, but he justified us. We were unrighteous, but he credited us his own righteousness. While he credited Jesus our sin. We were children of wrath, but his answer was to adopt us as his children. We were alienated, but God united us with his son. We walked in sin, but he expiated, he removed our sin. While we were once under God's wrath, he propitiated. He satisfied his wrath against us through his son. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus, paid our debt, a debt we could never pay on our own. He reconciled us to himself and he forgave us our sin. The riches of what God has done for us in the gospel just go on and on. There are so many more that are under the regeneration event benefits. But now I want you to, so I want you to follow along with me as I just quickly read through that list. Again, these are unchangeable, objective realities secured by God for the believer at conversion. We are loved by God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by Christ. We're member of Christ's body. We are members of one another. We have confident access to God. We are under grace. We have been saved from God's wrath. We are free from condemnation. We are unable to be separated from Christ. We have peace with God. 
with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, our citizenship, it's not here anymore, ladies. Our citizenship is now in heaven. We have been declared righteous. And this is all because of what Christ has done on the cross. This is the regeneration event when the gospel is applied to a sinner and she becomes a saint. What a costly salvation. What a complete salvation. Regeneration makes our life in Christ today and for all eternity possible. Do you see when you take this in, how these truths just melt away any self-righteousness that we might have, any self-reliance, self-confidence? See, the more we saturate our hearts and minds with the salvation work of God, the more we will worship Him the more we will labor to live in humble submission to him, the more we'll desire to obey him out of a heart of gratitude for all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are overwhelmed this morning as we have been able to look into your gospel, all the truths that we have been able to see this morning. Father, I I pray that you would help us to comprehend how amazing your salvation is, how complete it is. Oh, Father, may this never become familiar to us to the point where it loses its impact on our hearts. I pray that our response would always be one of gratitude for all that you would have done. That it would cause us to worship you, to be in awe of you, to be obedient to you. Father, that's our desire, that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of this gospel that we looked at this morning. And Father, it is with an overwhelming sense of awe in what you have done that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.